Connecticut and Massachusetts, ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got gotcha. you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZANDMHomes.com. You know, the weird thing about getting older is that I might not remember where I left my keys. I might not remember all of my important passwords. I might not even remember where the hell I parked my car. But I can damn well remember a song from 37 years ago like it was yesterday. And I'm pretty sure I can tell you where I was when I first heard it. See, that's what I'm talking about. I have no business remembering that stuff, but yet I do. In 1986, the band The Rainmakers released their self-titled debut album. And the song Let My People Go-Go was the big hit off that record. It was an insanely catchy track that would become an even bigger hit in the UK and throughout Europe. It was a record that was recorded at the legendary Arden Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, and produced by Terry Manning, who would have a hand in working with bands like Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, Joe Walsh, and Big Star, and many, many more. And at the time of that record's release, the Rainmakers were being hailed as America's next great band by Newsday. Newsweek called it the most auspicious debut album of the year. Rolling Stone, USA Today, and the College Music Journal were tripping all over themselves over these guys, and deservedly so. But as great as these American-sounding records were, they were still bigger stars in Europe, especially in Norway, which could not get enough of the Rainmakers. Over the course of their career, the Rainmakers released nine terrific albums. Their songs were clever, original, and melded with a great sense of humor. Their lyrics were even cited by one of their most passionate fans, author Stephen King, who quoted the Rainmakers in not one, but two of his best-selling novels. But the story behind the band is every bit as interesting and as compelling as the ones written by Stephen King himself. And the primary songwriter for the Rainmakers was Bob Walkenhurst. He's my guest today from the Rainmakers on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I want to thank you for being flexible. I know I had a little bit of a scheduling issue last week, but it's great that you're able to do this. I, I, I really do appreciate it quite a lot. Well, you're you're welcome. It's nice that Alan set this up, and my schedule's pretty flexible and relaxed these days, so no big deal. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny when Alan uh, contacted me. He said because uh, you know he was you know he's been paying attention to the podcast and you know the people I've been booking. He said, "Do you remember the Rainmakers?" And with, you know, without any hesitation, I said, "Yes, I remember the Rainmakers. I remember uh, 1986. Let my people go, go." And it's like you know, it, those it's like one of those songs I played in in college radio. And the weird part about yeah. it is, you know, 37 years later, that hook is so powerfully ingrained into my head. It's literally one of those songs that, for whatever reason, keeps popping in my head, I'd say, like two or three times a week. <laughs> I'm, I apologize. Well, I was going to ask you. I'm not sure whether to thank you or charge you for that. <laughs> yeah, really. When you write a song like that, or you stumble across, or however you wind up coming to it, what does it make you feel like? I mean, is there a particular feeling you get when you say, wow, I just can't believe that just poured right out of me? What, what do you do when that happens? Well, that was a fairly early song. I really felt like I had only kind of gotten my songwriting legs under me 
about a year before that, maybe a year to two years before that. So I still had a lot of doubts about my songwriting as far as being able to tell what was good and what was not good. <laughs> and I clearly remember, but we had this little trio. I was the the original drummer in the band. We had a trio and we were really very focused on, you know, let's figure out how to write songs, let's figure out how to make original music and make original recordings and all that. And uh, I was kind of the, you know, the guy working on the songwriting part of it, but I wasn't really sure when I wrote a good one and when I didn't. And I remember actually bringing that into the to the band and saying, okay, <laughs> we were trying really hard to write songs about unusual subject matter. You know, there have been so many loves, too many love songs written, too many party songs written, all that stuff, angsty stuff. I was really trying to find unique subject matter. And I remember bringing it into the band and going, guys, I've written this song if this is too stupid or just doesn't work, you tell me. So I was not confident <laughs> about it. And they're like, no, I think, I think that's, that's okay. And, uh, yeah, then I, after play, and then we were road testing the songs, you know, they were always played live before they were recorded. Sure. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You could see what people responded to and what they remembered and what they sang along with. You could see that real quickly. And so, yeah, that song I, I came to realize was, okay, this is a well-structured pop song. And actually, in sometimes uh, in past years when we've played this song, and it's, it's changed keys once, there's certain things in the in the chord changes. And I think, how did I, how did I think of that? That doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the, the wonderful things that happen when you really don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, The trio you're talking about is Steve, Bob, and Rich. Right. And you recorded a record called Balls, which, by the way, I, I, I respect that title. But you guys did change. Have you seen the album? I have. I have seen it on uh, on Spotify. I haven't actually held a, a, a physical copy of it. It has our three bowling balls on the cover of it. <laughs> so, so it was. You know, we were pretty funny guys, really. <laughs> so, uh, and each each bowling ball had had uh, our name, you know, inscribed in it. So the Perfect. top one was Steve. Mine was Bob, and and then the last ball was Rich. So. But great album. In fact, it was the album cover that got us signed to Mercury Records. They, you know, the, all those record companies in the 80s, and I suppose before and after, had a policy of not listening to any unsolicited material. That was their sure. that was their tagline. If it's unsolicited material, we will not listen to it. So Pete Lubin, uh, I don't know, know if you've ever interviewed Pete. You know, he's kind of a legendary A&R guy uh, who's remained a good, a good friend of mine. They had they had this pile where they just threw all the unsolicited material, and our album was one of the unsolicited. So they had this massive pile. Well, the directors, there were budget issues or something. They were they had Pete was pissed off. He always considered himself, you know, an artist as an A and R man. And they told him, you know, he couldn't be. He had to be picking out better bands or different kind of bands or something. And anyway, someone had gotten under his skin. He thought, well, I'm just going to sign something terrible and show him what, show him what, you know, who's, what, who's boss here. So he went to the pile and said, let me pick out something that's absolutely going to be crap. And he sees this album cover with three bowling balls on the cover. And he goes, this is going to suck. And uh, puts it on the turntable, and Pete says, "You don't know how disappointed I was that you guys didn't suck." He said, "I really wanted this to be awful." So that was the beginning of our relationship with Mercury Records. So, was signing with Mercury the reason why you guys changed your name? I know you added another guy. I mean, I would, you know, I would have bought a record from Steve, Bob, Rich, and Pat. I think that sells the whole thing. Well, you know, uh, bands that start out as bar bands, you know, you're playing four hours of cover songs. And then if you're serious about the music, 
you're trying to figure out how do I write songs that are as good as these cover songs we're playing? You know, how can I write a song that if we played a Beatles song, we played this one after it, the bottom, the bottom of the show doesn't fall out, you know? (laughs) So, uh, we, we had figured out how to, uh, how to write songs. And I was the guy doing most of the writing and being the drummer, even though I was a stand up drummer and kind of, you know, the centerpiece, it was hard work and we needed the songs I was writing needed a little more sound to them. They, right. It really was made more for a two guitar band and we were just a one guitar band. So it, we had been leaning towards doing that anyway. And we knew during the making of the record that this would be the time to make that change. So uh, it, it was really our decision. It was not, uh, there were people in at Mercury who were like, oh, no, 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 don't change the name. Steve Bob and Rich is just so, <laughs> you know, lovably corny. Right. The, but, uh, but no, we wanted, uh, so we, we had all the time during the making of the record to decide. We knew who our drummer was going to be, Pat Tomic, and just had to decide what the band name would be. So it was our decision. Pretty remarkable, though, when you think about it. You, know, you go from being in this talent puddle and the next thing you know, you, it, it's you know, it's picked out of this pile, and then you're recording your first album at Arden Studios with Terry Manning as your producer. I mean, that's I mean, there's so much history with that place, and 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 especially with him. I mean, what a great way yeah. to come out swinging on your career. Tell tell me about that experience at Arden. Well, the the first day we arrived in Memphis, and they gotten us a really crap, you know. They they weren't going to spend any more money on us than they had to, and uh, we had some crappy little motel we were staying in, and we but we arrive in Memphis and they said, well, come on down to the studio this night. We're having I think it was their twentieth anniversary or something. The studio had been around for twenty years. We're going to have you know a reception here. You guys should come down and see the studio and all that. So we uh, we go down and we walk in the door. You know, the first person we see is Billy Gibbons. And we're like, oh boy, <laughs> this is this is getting real and cool very fast. And you know, uh, around the corner here, you know, there's uh, I, I can't remember if it was Duck, I think it was Duck Dunn. Anyway, the, you know, all these Memphis and Alex Chilton was there, and it's like all these Memphis people that we adored are like standing around drinking punch. <laughs> so it was a it was a pretty heady start. And then um, Terry Manning is just one of the nicest people and easygoing and really into the music and just a just a great guy to hang out with so we immediately got along just great and uh you know all the stories of struggling and arguing with your producer you know that just did not apply uh there was an understanding going into making our first record that terry had done these you know he, he had been working with zz top for a long time and Eliminator had happened, and you know how huge that record was. Sure. And Eliminator changed ZZ Top because the band was not in very good shape in those days, and so Z- so uh, Terry convinced Billy Gibbons just to give this drum machine thing a try. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that changed the feel and changed the sound and changed the approach. And so that was Terry's, what do you call it, the, his, that was his mode of operation those days. like, we're going to program drums because that's the sound that I'm working with right now. So that was just, and it's like, if you want to work with me, this is where we're going to do it. And wow. he was nice enough about it, but he's, he made it clear that this, this was not open to negotiation. <laughs> it's funny that you brought up Alex Shilton. I, I interviewed Jody Stevens, who you used to play with in big star. Right, and Jody would, Jody was working at Arden when we were there. He was in sales. Yeah. And now he manages it. He's the manager he? there. Yeah. He, uh, my understanding is that, you know, when I talked to him, he, that he's, he's kind of in charge <laughs> 
were partially in charge of the place. It's like a family thing down there. Yeah, it is. No, the, you know, the day the day we arrived and went to that reception, the next day we go in and um, uh, the replacements were just packing up. They had just recorded, was I think it was Pleased to Meet Me. Yep. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the legendary for Jim Dickinson. They had just, you know, finished recording that with Jim Dickinson. And, you know, say, here's all these cool people walking in and out. And uh, wow. we're like, okay, our turn. Uh, we went down to Memphis um, nah, about six years ago, just for the pandemic. Me and Rich Ruth, our bass player, he was he lives in Nashville, has for a long time, and he rode his motorcycle over. And we took a buddy of ours from, from Norway and uh, went to Ardent. And, you know, it was... It was good to see it was still in shape. It was sad to see it's like, yeah, this doesn't get used very much anymore. I mean, there were three rooms and they were always full and booked ahead and yeah. rocking. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the the recording industry, just like the record industry, has changed so much. It was it was kind of see, sad to see it's like, yeah, Arden's probably going to be struggling yeah. like like all the other studios. So when the, the that first record came out. You guys were getting, and I've read in the press releases, I've read you know countless stories about you guys. I mean, the, the notice that you guys were getting in the press was unbelievable. I mean, it was so positive and so optimistic about you know, the Rainmakers being the next great American band. Like you said, it's a, a quick transition from being lost and forgotten in a pile. You're at Ardent, and now the press is responding to what you've done with a song, you know, let my people go, go being a, a big hit that has to be so surreal and so fast. I mean, do you feel like you were even remotely prepared for something like that at the time? Yeah, we were prepared. I mean, not to compare ourselves to the Beatles, but you know, the Beatles always say that when it finally broke for them, both in England and then in America, they had been playing together for six years or something, you know, they yeah. had been hammering it out in the clubs. They knew how to do this. And we were kind of in the same position, even though we were changing, adding a member, uh, we had been playing four hours a night, four or five days a week for wow. about three years or four years. So we, we knew how to do this <laughs> and, uh, we knew how to, you know, we knew how to do that part of the job really well. We were lucky, you know, they, there's so many, cliches about timing is everything and uh but we were really lucky in our timing in that we got into mercury records with an a and r man that absolutely protected us like we were his children uh very 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 protective of us terry manning very much into what we were doing he didn't he nor the A&R people or anybody said, why don't you try doing something different? They were like, do what you're doing, because it's not quite like anything else that anybody else is doing. They were very much, they had a lot of confidence in us. And at that moment, Mercury uh, Polygram was really flush with money because Bon Jovi had just broken through, uh, Tears for Fears had just broken through, John mm -hmm. Mellencamp was making a lot of money. Uh, they had, you know, they had all these bands that were that were hitting their stride as far as million sales stuff. So they had the flexibility to let's let's spend some real money on these new guys, see what happens. That'll get you so far, <laughs> and then you have to have then you have to have your luck and your timing. Uh, it, you just have to hope it falls in place. On the other side of that coin, uh, you talked about let my people go go being a hit. Well, yes and no we kind of realized that a record company at that point in time in the mid eighties was a army of people. And if you could get all those people 
on your side or believing in you, they would work their butts off. I still, I just now wrote a message to a guy that I met when he was putting up posters in a record store in Boston. And he went on to be, you know, a, a, a one of the major promotion people at Mercury. And I just wrote him a message like 10 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> You know, these were people that genuinely loved music and genuinely, genuinely would work their butts off for you. Uh, all those cliches about record company weasels and they don't give a shit. And they just want to, you know, figure out the next way to make the easiest thing that was not applying to us. You know, we had people who said, do exactly what you're doing. But let my people go, though. That army of people went out and took it to radio stations and said, this is a great song. This is a killer live band. That we want you to play this new band, new record, and so all across the country we were getting airplay. Back at the record pressing plant, they had a uh, some breakdown of production, and the record manufacturer got manufacturing of it got delayed by two or three weeks. And so wow. rec- radio stations are playing a record that people cannot buy. And as soon as they find out, what, we're playing a record people can't buy? Well, they stop playing that record. So we had this initial boom of everyone was playing it, and then boom, everyone was not because it did not, it did not exist. Uh, it's like, well, that's something, you know? You mentioned about the timing, and, you, and this is a perfect example of, of that. You know, when the, your timing is, is right, but then you're relying on everybody else's timing to kind of coalesce with all of that. Well, and there's... It's like a, a machine with a million gears, and every once in a while, a gear just gets out of out of whack or breaks or something, and you've got to go in and fix it. So, so they fixed that. Okay, they got the record actually printed and out in stores. Let my people go go had come and gone. Got a little airplay on MTV. You know, MTV was so crucial at that point in time. You had to get in the door at MTV. Right. Um, so all of our ducks are lined up now. The record is existing. It's in the stores. We're in. You know, we're in Newsweek magazine. We're getting a little, you know, we're getting blurbs in Rolling Stone. Okay, everything's lined up. All right, we're going to do our second single downstream. We've got a good video, live video for that, uh, live concert video. And, and uh, you know, it, it was a really well-done video. Shot it at a, one of our concerts when the concert was over. Everybody stick around. We're going to make a video. Uh, and MTV likes that one even better. They're playing it, and they take the record out to, to radio downstream, and it's the same week that Bruce Springsteen releases his boxed set <laughs> of live, right. you know, Springsteen Live, whatever that, those years were. And so of the eight new spots available at radio, well, Bruce gets six of them. <laughs> and then everybody else in the world gets to fight over the other two. Wow. So, we, you know, we got a little bit squeezed out. And not Bruce's fault, you know. It's just like <laughs> it, it's a big machine with a whole lot of gears and... Yeah, sometimes the gears just don't all mesh up the way you want them to. What's What's interesting about all of that is okay. So you know, American radio stations and uh, and consumers don't buy the record in, in numbers that you would like, but it does somehow become a fairly decent sized hit in Europe. How did that happen? We, you know, and and I mean, it's such an American sounding Midwestern type of band that it you know it it, it almost seems like why would Europe grab onto this? But they really did. Well, there. In Europe, I mean, you know, Western Europe is what we're dealing with. Uh, American roots music had always had a, a real broad following. It never went away. You know, the old rock and roll stars from the 50s, Bill Haley and, and Jerry Lee Lewis and people like that, they stayed much more 
respected and concert attendance and all that in in Europe for decades after they you know were playing car shows in the U.S. Uh, that that roots music just seemed to be revered a little more. So here was this new wave of American bands kind of playing that roots music, you know, stuff that you could see the direct direct relationship to earlier American rock and roll. And that was really, that was, that was doing well in Europe. And so Mercury was part of Polygram. Polygram was actually headquartered in Switzerland, I think. So that, so they, you know, it was an international record company. And so they're like, okay, time, we, we've got the wheels turning in America. Let's uh, see what to do here in England and let my people go, go was being played on the BBC. And the BBC had this rule that as long as you were moving up in the charts, they would keep playing it. But once you stopped moving up and it started moving down, then you were, then they didn't play you anymore. That's the way that was kind of the way it was explained to me. Well, our record just kept gaining a point every week, you know, (laughs) gaining two points this week. Uh, So they just kept playing. We got played for a long, long time on uh, BBC. So then the BBC play transfers into, well, there was this show called the tube which I I think kind of was was took the place of the old whistle stop test or whatever it yep. was called where yeah. bands per- performed live and it was a live broadcast so you needed to be you know you needed to bring it and we were on with uh, Terrence Trent Dar no wait that we were on top of the pops so anyway we were we did uh, we were on with UB40 that's who we were on with wow. and we played well and they had lined up. Elton John's horn section to play with us. It was like, and we arrived, they've got their shit down. <laughs> and we, we played the gig and, and did it well. And then, uh, and then a month after that, we came back over and, and did top of the pops and yeah, those things make a, make it happen. And so, yeah, we, we did well in, in England and that's of course spread to Germany and France and the Netherlands and, and then Scandinavia, which was a just, that's where it really worked for us, and we weren't even expecting it. We were that was all kind of a, it was all kind of a mystery land up there. We didn't even know what you know where anything was, and <laughs> we get up there and realize, oh, this we're happening up here, and particularly Norway. That was Norway has been good, very, very good to us. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 noticed you know looking ahead here, you know, you got the, the live album from Oslo, Wichita Live, uh, which you guys re- you know released soon before you broke up, but. What was it about Norway that disconnected so much with them? Uh, it, it's that same thing of the European respect and taste for American roots music and guitar-based music. And, you know, remembering the 80s, you know, synthesizers had kind of kicked the guitar into the back seat for a while, but then there the more roots music that was guitar-based, that was finding its own current. And Norway, you know, is a small, it's a, a large country with a very small population. We got a review in a, a key music magazine. And Norway is one of those countries where a little bit of word of mouth, a little bit of airplay on national radio, and everybody knows knows about you. Right. And that's exactly what happened to us. The record company really worked hard, did their job. National radio played us. Uh, we came and did a concert that it's people to this day, you know, <laughs> talk, talk about uh, our, our legendary first appearance in Oslo and that where we proved what here's, yeah, we're a rock and roll band. We can do this. <laughs> and then it was just, you know, a, a series of returning to Norway and doing concert tours. They say that the Rainmakers saw, have seen more of Norway than most Norwegians. <laughs> we traveled top to bottom, wow. winter and summer. We, we saw every place in that country. 
And then, of course, did Sweden and Finland as well, and, and uh, Denmark. Played the Roskilde Festival in Denmark, and that was that was a big, big deal. And that support continued for the next couple of albums. I mean, they, they, they really just continued to support you guys there. Well, and that was kind of the weird, the weird parallel tracks in that our first album did really well in the States. The second one didn't do quite as well. The third one did less than that. Uh, it went the other direction in Europe. Our first one did okay. Second one did better. Third one did really well. Uh, so it was kind of this contradiction, and it's like, okay, how come this is working over here, but we can't get this to work the same way in the States? Were you frustrated by that, or were you, you know, what was your mindset at the time? Uh, and not really. Not. I can't really say we were frustrated. I mean, I think we were aware of the the chance, the the, the chance, the, the luck, the timing stuff. We were aware that, that that overruled anyone's best intentions, that people could, uh, you know, we could be doing everything right. Our management could be doing most things right. The record company could be working really hard. And still, you need this little dash of luck for it to kind of yeah. get over that hill. And, you know, we got over some hills, but we didn't get over all the hills. <laughs> and now you're almost at the point where you're over the hill and you don't want to be there either. I, I, I'm definitely <laughs> over the hill. So <laughs> no, you know, like the third, the third album came out. So we did two albums with Terry Manning and man, cut me off. I get, I get talking about this stuff. I can go for a long time. Um, <laughs> you know, we did two albums with Terry Manning. Both of them, I, we were very happy with, uh, both of them did, you know, respectably. And then, but the second one didn't do as well as the American record company really expected it to do. They thought it was going to be, you know, first one was going to set the stage and the second was going to be the, the home, the, uh, home run. Well, that didn't happen. So they said, well, let's, let's change things up. Let's get a different producer. Let's go, go to a different studio. And, and I, you know, I really had mixed feelings about that. I love Terry working with Terry was just great. Right. Uh, but they said, well, you know, the jury, and I, I know what, tip them georgia satellites had just had keep your hands to yourself and there was like well that even sounds like the rainmakers and so they wanted <laughs> to figure out who made that record well of jeff glicksman and uh so we went to austin and recorded the jeff glicksman and it was a live you know pretty much live in the studio record we did did some overdubs but it was it was the live band live drums live vocals on quite a few of the songs and uh so he's wanted to make it a much more organic approach, which I enjoy doing. You know, there's there's an excitement about not building a record, a recording one instrument at a time. You know, <laughs> that's long and tedious. It can have a great it can have a great end result, but there's something just extremely exciting about the whole band plays. Me as the lead vocalist, sing your ass off, and when it's done, you realize that's done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that, we did it, man. Yeah. And maybe it took you three tries maybe it took you 15 tries but it's really exciting when it all and you know well we don't have to fix anything in that that's that's pretty much done you you mean you mentioned about how as as a live band you guys were were really on the ball and i I was listening to the i was listening to the oslo uh wichita album and it's you're it's absolutely true it's you guys sound so good i mean i realize it's a live album there's a lot of work that's done and how things are recorded in a live album but I've heard a lot of live albums that didn't sound even nearly as good as that. But soon after that, you guys decided to, to take a break. What was what was going on in the band that decided to, it was time to step away? The third record came out, and all those things I was telling you about, about the first record where Bon Jovi had made a lot of money, or John Mellencamp had made all these bands had, had uh, made Mercury very flush with cash, 
it was the opposite story. Tears for Fears next album was delayed by two years. John Mellencamp did, did Big Daddy, which did not sell very well. Uh, Def Leppard's had a you know Def Leppard had a car wreck, and so they were delayed, and and the band was anyway. All these things that had been the cash flow for Mercury all of a sudden had gotten hugely delayed. And so their finances, their financial picture changed very fast. And in fact, the week our record was released, they sent out a memo to all the regional promotion people and said, because of budget problems, you have to do everything by phone and, uh, and you can't travel. And, oh, you know, the personal showing up at the radio station, showing up at the record store, that all those, that army of promotion people did, that's what made the difference. And this is, of course, before cell phones. So telling them you just got to stay in, in your office or your house and call all these people, it was pretty much just saying, uh, we're not going to, we can't spend any money on <laughs> things that are risky, like the Rainmakers, you know. We right. have not broken through to be a big moneymaker for them. So literally, the, the week our record came out, they stopped doing promotion. And, you know, we went out and toured. We were, you know, we went out with the Doobie Brothers. We went out with, uh, who else? We were with Can- a long tour with Kansas. Mm. And, uh, and you know, we were out there playing and really doing the work. <laughs> And I went to a radio station, I think it might have been back here in Kansas City, where the guy says, well, I'm really sorry, sorry, man. And I said, sorry about what? He goes, well, if we just got the memo, you were dropped from Mercury Records. I'm like, they didn't even call me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they're telling radio guys we're not promoting this band anymore. They're not on our la- they're not on our label. And I'm like, well, wow, that's the first I heard about it. What Which is-, is really out of character for them. I mean, we, we had like a personal relationship with Dick Asher, who was the... Uh, you know, the president of the label, but I think he was leaving right at that time too. So everything was changing and that, you know, that's, yeah. that's the roll of the dice. But that's a, but that's a real shitty way to find out that the, that was every, a shitty way of finding everything out. Everything changes. Know. So our manager wanted to, uh, wanted us to, uh, anyway, that you were asking what, <laughs> what brought about us saying, we got to stop doing this for a while. Uh, you know, the bass player and the guitar player had each missed a birth, you know, that mm. we'd try to plan, okay, here's the window to stay at home. So you can be there when the baby is born, the windows didn't work out. You know, we were in Arkansas for one baby being born and we were in Denmark for another baby being born. And, and, you know, that starts taking a personal toll. I got divorced during this time. Sure. And I, I, you know, I, I, have very few bad things to say about the people that managed us. They were really good. One, you know, one of our managers, he, he was here at my house this summer. I mean, we, we still are in touch. We're Man. friends. Um, but they did not build in enough rest time for us. It was just go, go, go. And if we weren't out playing gigs in bars and colleges and stuff, that was when I was at home writing and we were recording demos and then we were in the studio. We, we just, we just didn't take a break for, for, you know, three years. Um, And I think, I think it would have served everyone well if they would have said, okay, you guys just need to not do anything for a month. I think that would have served us well, you know, 2020 hindsight. Yeah. Well, I mean, when expectations are high, you know, nobody wants to give you that break because they're waiting for something to to break. Keep your nose down to the, down to the wheel. And uh, until this, until you feel like you can, ha, we can afford to take a break. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that, that we just got worn out. And yeah. so I I pulled the plug. I'm kind of, I'm kind of always the guy that pulls the plug. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just said, guys, I, I am, I am li- we are living our dream, and I am miserable. 
and and I got to go figure this out. You know, this has cost me a marriage. Uh, you know, I'm not enjoying this. I don't feel like we're doing a very good job now. And we got to figure out, you know, all we can do right now is stop. So we're just going to stop and, and we'll figure out what, what we're going to do after that. But right now we're going to stop. And if you guys want to keep going, have at it. If you want to start another band, have at it. But I'm out of this for a while. Uh, it probably would have been smarter on my part to say, we're on hiatus. We're still a band. We're still going to do this. We're going to still reach out there. But, you know, I broke, broke off the contract with our management. Um, the record company, everybody had changed. No, nobody that had any loyalty or interest in us was there anymore. Yeah. So all of a sudden it was just kind of like, Ooh, the ball game's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we got traded, you know, right. we got traded to another league. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was just, it was just very confusing. Everyone had worked really hard. We had lots of allies. And then all of a sudden just kind of like, this just didn't work. The- and I, why am I unhappy? That was kind of the, 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 really the nail was like, I'm doing exactly what I've dreamed of doing since I was a kid. Why am I miserable? But I hear that story, and I hear you making the decision to to stop for the right reasons. And it's not like there was infighting within the band, and you guys are tearing no, each other wasn't. apart. Because every three or four years, it seems like you guys kept you know getting back and and trying it again, and 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 stopping when things weren't right, and doing it all over again. So it's like there doesn't seem to be any hostility or you know acrimony between the guys in the band. It's always been just about life and 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 circumstances. Yeah, and and about the business. It's like the business is hard. It's it's a it's a hard way to make a living. And the people that break through and become millionaires or have, you know, have self-sustaining careers, that is a very very small fraction of the people that that start out playing music or the people that even start out making records. The people that actually that that converts into something, you know, we did this long tour with Berlin and they were they were nice people. I really liked uh liked all of them and at that time they were considering just the three these three people are the band you know it was terry and and uh john and and then their drummer that was who the band was and they were unhappy you know they had this massive hit take my breath away and they were unhappy you know they were every show they were they weren't they weren't happy either (laughs) and uh you know our very first tour was with big country who i adored i thought Wow, our very first coast to coast tour, we're opening for Big Country, a band that is I love. We get to the first gig in San Diego, and those guys are miserable. You know, <laughs> the record's not happening; they're pissed yeah. off at the record company. Uh, it's like, oh, I thought everybody here would be happy, but it's <laughs> like, no, the happiness lies elsewhere. This is a hard business to be in. You can have your moments of everything's going right, and it will be followed by moments where it's not going right. And yeah, I, you know, I have met. I've met too many frustrated people in the music business, uh, and that even applies to the, the like promotion people. That that it's a hard business to be in. It sure. doesn't uh, it's not, it doesn't cut you a break. So let me ask you this, because I did listen to you know some of the stuff that uh, that you and your daughter have done, and the stuff that she's done solo, and 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 she's very very talented. That stuff is really really good. But as someone who has been in music for as long as you have, I mean, you must have a certain perspective about it that I'm sure your folks didn't have when you were starting out. What do you tell your kid when they've got talent and and, and the drive to do something with their music? I mean, are you encouraging or are you kind of like, you know, it's a little bit of trepidation in how you talk about this? Well, there was definitely trepidation as she said, I really want to make, I want to go for this. And I, tried to point out to her okay here's here's what i have learned and you know it's that same 
conversation that any good parent and child relationship where you try to tell your kid what you've learned and the truth is they have to learn it themselves. It doesn't matter if they're trying to go into the same line of business. It doesn't matter if it's about love and romance or about how to plant a garden. They have to go figure it out themselves. And, you know, I tried to tell her, you know, here's here's the parts that that I loved, and here's the parts that were so much harder than I would have guessed. I was at uh, we we were doing a show here in Kansas City, and Steve Forbert was playing in the little ad- adjoining bar, and I you know, I had loved Steve Forbert since his first record, and and so I was really anxious to meet him, and and the guy who's introduced us said, yeah, Bob does music with his daughter now and then, and Steve looks at me and he goes man, you don't want her to go to the music business, do you? And I said, well, you know, kind of worked out for you and me. Uh, you know, it, it is a way to make a living. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I, again, here's part of the good timing. I was uh, the songwriter of the band at a time when publishing companies were throwing money around like it was candy. You know, we got, I got some very good publishing advances. So, you know, I actually made a living doing this and, I've, you know, I've I've done something else for a living for about a decade. I was in in video production for a while, but making music has has provided me a living and provided me a pretty good one. So, you know, I tried to convey that to my daughter that you can be, and she is, she's a smart, practical person. I said you have to be smart and practical about this, and you have to love music. I said if you're just in it for the lifestyle, it's not going to last. Everybody that I knew who just wanted to look and act like a rock star, <laughs> those guys didn't last very long at all. You know, you got to dearly love music to to endure in it and um she's taking a break from it right now it didn't really seem to fit her Mm -hmm. lifestyle you know the kind of life she wanted she realized oh you're just out you know riding vans and trains and buses and bad airplanes uh and staying in motels and that you don't get to get way too late and you have to leave way too early and this is hard you know that this is she realized this is hard so i think every kid has to discover on their own that dad is not so stupid after all. <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe dad knew what he was talking just about. Tell them that they have to, uh, <laughs> you know, they have to kind of experience the sensory part of it themselves. It's like, yeah, this is just as hard as dad said it would be. Yeah. I want to mention a little bit about, uh, your art career. I know you, you started off as an art student. It sounds like music actually got in the way, <laughs> the way of you becoming a full-time artist at the time. Tell me about your, your work as a painter. I mean, I've seen, uh, some of it online. It's really very, very good. Well, thank you. Um, you know, there's so many people involved in music who have always done visual art, too. I mean, you know, there's a great book of Paul McCartney's paintings. Uh, Tony Tony Bennett was a great painter, really yeah. good painter. Uh, Ron Wood's a very accomplished painter. You know, Joni Mitchell, there, there's so many of them, the people that dabble both sides. Um, and I was that way as a kid, too. I, I was already singing. I came from a very small town, and I was always singing in church and school plays and all that stuff. So I was getting the positive reinforcement for music, but I always loved making visual art. And that's kind of two very different sides of your personality. I mean, making music, even though you're, you're writing and creating music very privately, it's with the idea you're going to take it out to the world uh, and you're going to play it live and you're going to make people dance. You're going to rock them. You know, that that's, that's where that goes. Yeah. The the visual arts is, is silence. You know, it's about silence. It's about, you're going to make this on your own. You're going to hang it up somewhere. You're not going to be there when people see it. If somebody wants to buy it, that's great. You'll say goodbye to it and you'll never see it again. So, you know, it's two very different kinds of it, but it's just, it's just making stuff. You know, yeah. I, I kind of realize that, that 
what the arts is all about is just a bunch of people who want to make stuff. You feel good when you're making stuff. And if you're not making stuff, you just get kind of edgy and antsy and you just need to be making stuff. Yeah. I, I read a quote by you and I thought it was actually interesting. You talked about silence and you know, songs are about words and sound, but painting is about silence and about finding a language that doesn't use words. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it, but you're good at expressing yourself in, in, in both ways of the two, which one is more satisfying to you? Oh, is there music has been more satisfying. I, yeah, I would just have to say it fall on the side of music. Um, being successful in the visual arts industry is even kind of, harder and yuckier <laughs> yuckier in many ways than than the, than the music business you eventually have to only be selling your visual art to rich people if you want to make a living at it you have to be selling it if you want to make a really good living at it you have to be selling it to rich people and to corporations you know records i mean cds cassettes whatever you know you're selling beers you know right. here here here's a cassette for seven dollars or whatever you know here's an <laughs> album for ten bucks you know you're not you're reaching the masses. So it, it's the, the, the way to make a living doing each one of those kind of goes a very different path. And, uh, you know, rock and roll is, is, is a people's music. It's a, it's a beer, it's a beer sales with the visual arts. You're eventually selling cocaine. I think. <laughs> <laughs> now we go back to the A&R guys. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So I know that, the, that, that things have changed, you know, with the band, you know, Steve Phillips is, is no longer with us, but, where are you at with music today? I mean, do the are the Rainmakers uh, you know still a thing, or have you moved on to to something new? The Rainmakers are not a thing anymore. We, yeah. I again made a a, a decision last August that uh, it was time to bring this to a close. You know, we didn't play it all during the pandemic until just at the end of the pandemic. We did an outside gig, and uh, so we weren't playing real often. Going to Norway, which we started up again in 2011, and we would go over once or twice a year from 2011 till the pandemic started. That was a wonderful, fun. We saw so much in Norway, even more of Norway when they had than we had before. We have good, good friends over there. Uh, we would go over as a band. I would go over solo and, and take my wife. Uh, went over with my daughter and, and, and my wife went too. And, you know, so, you know, we, we, Norway was home away from home. Uh, but those trips just got harder and harder yeah. physically to do. Uh, we would, the band would go for two weeks and play 10 shows in 12 days and then a day to get there and a day to get home. It was exhausting. And by the, the last time we did it, it was just an endurance contest. And I'm like, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. This is too hard. You know, people say, well, you're huge in Norway. Well, we're, we're remembered in Norway. We were, we were never, <laughs> we, are you know, we were never Bruce Springsteen in Norway. We were, you know, we were doing nice music clubs, some nice, some very cool festivals, yeah. you know, did a short group of, of dates with Leonard Cohen, uh, you know, we just did wonderful, cool experiences. But, you know, I reached the point where I was like, this is, just, I don't, I'm not enjoying this. It's too hard. And uh, so in 2019, we did a farewell show at a, at a guy's, a friend's farm in north central Norway. 
boats behind us. The stage, the stage is right down on the water. Wow. You know, it was just, it was just picturesque beyond description. It was just wonderful. And, you know, dozens of friends are there. Um, and so we brought that to an end. And I said, and this, this will be it, guys. And we immediately get, start getting offers for festivals again in Norway. And I'm like, no, we <laughs> built this as a farewell show. And we were, we were not kiss. We really meant it. We're, this is farewell. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to get on an international flight again, ever. Yeah. But just, and and I, it makes life easier when you make these decisions firmly instead of saying, well, if the money's good enough, maybe. It's like, no, just either say yes or no. Well, and it, I, it makes me feel better to just say, no, I, we've done that. We've done it well. We had a perfect ending. I don't want to do it again. Kind of came that same thing in, in the States in that when we – Start playing again in 2011, you know. We tried to get a gig in Chicago. We couldn't get one. We played in St. Louis. We played, you know, Minneapolis several times, but not to Denver. We played, you know, kind of a big circle around the Midwest. I didn't really want to go to the coasts, you know. It's just uh, it, it's a lot of work to get to the coast, and you can't really make any money at our little level. Yeah. So, um, you know, once the pandemic was over and we got to playing again, we were only playing about four or five dates a year, which is not enough dates to stay sharp. And so this past, this past year, all during 2022, I just said, okay, we're playing. Okay. I think we should stop while we're playing. Okay. Yeah. You know, we're not, <laughs> we're getting older. There's nothing you can do about that. We don't play often enough. We don't really have the opportunities to play often enough to, to stay really sharp and really blow people away. We're doing okay, <laughs> but let's stop while we're doing okay. Yeah. So I said, I said, I'm just not going to book anything in 2023. And, and, we're not going to announce it as a farewell or goodbye or anything, just in case I change my mind or we change our minds. I said, but I don't think so. Uh, so yeah, we just went and played some gigs during the holidays and had a little New Year's Eve party for our our very close, loyal fan base here, and and that was it. And I was okay, really okay with that being. That's the way this story ends. Our story has been you know, kind of different than everybody else's story. So I kind of like, well, let's make the ending a little different. We're not going to do a farewell. We're not going to get, we're just going to play a gig and that, then we just won't play another one. That feels right for this bit, for this story. Well, it's like we were saying before, I mean, you know, the decisions you made along, along the way have all been, you did it all for the right reasons. And I think, you know, you even go out with the right reasons. And, you know, while you're all still capable of making those right decisions, I have to respect that. Well, and I think you have to, you know, you have to be really true to your own analysis of where you are in life and what you want life to be. I, for the life of me, you know, I, I, I haven't been to a, I went to see Paul McCartney in 2015. My wife and I did. I'm glad I went. I'd never seen a Beatle. Uh, I didn't enjoy the show. You know, right. there's 16,000 assholes singing along in every song. <laughs> I don't want to hear you sing. I want to hear Paul sing. Well, you don't get to do that. Uh, I don't like big shows. And I, for the life of me, I watch Paul, uh, you know, videos of Paul or Bruce Springsteen or Dylan. And I'm like, I just can't, I really can't figure out why they're still doing it. I don't, I, I don't understand it. I'm glad they, I'm glad they've got their reasons and I'm glad it works for them. I don't get it. It's like, yeah. you don't, you can't make any more money. Your legacy is established. You must love doing it. That's all I can hope is that they absolutely love doing it. I love doing it, but I don't love traveling. Yeah, uh, I don't like playing loud anymore. I, I wear hearing aids now. You know, I've, I've beat up my hearing so much. So like, uh, so at the end of last year, I, I just asked myself, what parts of this do you love and which parts of this do you not love? Uh, 
and said, that's what I'm going to narrow it down to. And I still love writing a new song. I love recording it here in my little home studio. A few, a few hundred people hear it, you know, it doesn't get out to a mass audience, <laughs> wish it was a bigger audience, but you know, I can't change that, yeah. but I can still make a song. Uh, I like playing solo. And so I go down to my neighborhood bar twice a month and I play solo. I was doing a lot of house co- concerts before the pandemic. I was traveling coast to coast and, you know, flying a lot and driving a lot. And I thought, I like doing the house concerts. I really don't like driving and I really don't really don't like flying and I really don't want to stay in motels anymore. Right. So if it's, if it's a, within a, within an hour and I can drive home and sleep in my own bed, I'll come and play a house concert for you. But those are the terms. And, and again, it's putting those terms down for yourself and saying, here's my parameters. And this is just a conversation between you and yourself. Here's my parameters of what I can say I truly love doing yeah. and now stick inside these parameters. So, uh, yeah, you know, this, and the end of the Rainmakers has been, there's been a grieving thing to it to me. I've, you know, it's hit me a little harder than I was expecting uh, and a lot more thinking that I needed to do about it, a lot sure. more kind of analyzing what does this all mean? Where did this all add up to? Uh, but all in all, it's kind of like, you know, this is, this is, I wrote a song called My Version of the Story, and that's kind of, this is my version of the story, you know, it's, and it's a little different. It's quite a bit different than a lot of people's version of the story, but, you know, I got to see the story to the end, so yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. Bob, this has been so great. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. It's, I mean, it's uh, like I said, that song has been in my head for 37 years, and it's like, just, <laughs> and I, you know, damn you, Bob, <laughs> but it's it's in there, and it's and it's, it's just so wonderful to kind of you know, get the full story about it. So I, I do appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. Well, I, I thank you so much too, and and I hope Alan warned you that I was I'm a jabberbox. So <laughs> I hope you can make some sense out of that. I absolutely can. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate All right. the time. Take thank care. Thank you, Mike. Hey, nice talking to you. Bye bye. There you go, Bob Walkenhorst from the Rainmakers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. I'm also all over social media, too, and I'd love to hear from you there as well. Thanks again to ZM Home Buyers for their support. You can support them by going to znmhomes.com. And thank you again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.